0: economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics Podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa
1: University. So welcome to episode five of the Faith in Economics Podcast. My name is Levi Russell and I have Russ McCullough here as my co-host and Jacob Michael is here as well, graduate student here with the Whartney Institute. And today we have an interview with Jeffrey Dorfman, Dr. Jeffrey Dorfman, he's a professor at the University of Georgia in the Department of Agricultural and Applied Economics. Dr. Dorfman uh, has a bachelor's degree and a PhD in Agricultural Economics from the University of California, Davis. His research interests are in farmland preservation, economics of smart growth, uh, forecasting and econometrics and a, and a range of other topics and issues he's had several teaching and research honors uh, and Jeff and I were colleagues until very recently and I my office was down the down the hall from Jeff and we talked a lot talked politics and all kinds of stuff all the time and I thought we would have Jeff on today he is a, a member of the Alps Road Presbyterian Church in in, in Athens Georgia and I thought uh, Jeff would be a great person to have on to talk about the economics of food aid in the U.S. and how the federal government and maybe state governments as well, what they do to sort of alleviate food-related poverty, and to and and how the economics of that work, and how uh, you know maybe he sees the the ethical uh, and maybe Christian morality, how that plays into you know, whether or not we should support these sorts of things and the government should do them versus someone else um, and, and how all that works with the economic efficiency argument. And so I thought I'd start off with, um, with a food-related uh, Bible verse. Uh, James 2.14 says, uh, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has, says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Is a brother or sister who is poorly clothed and lacking on daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Um, and so I think that, you know, certainly is, is to some extent a, a command for Christians to consider the material needs of others. And poverty is certainly one of our big themes here at the Gortney Institute, our programs. Uh, but, but specifically looking at the food issue. Jeff, the, the, the federal government spends a lot of money on, on food aid, uh, whether that's the federal government or the state governments, or however you want to talk about that. What, what do those programs look like? Um, what, 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 what can you tell us about how those work?
2: Sure, the federal government spends about $100 billion a year on food aid. The biggest program by far is SNAP, the Supplemental Assistant, Nutrition Assistance Program, commonly known as food stamps. But then you've got some Meals on Wheels. You've got the School Lunch Program. You've got WIC for Women, Infants, and Children. You add it all up, it's about $100 billion a year. It is generally restricted aid. It's money that is given to people either directly in the form of food, like School Lunch or Meals on Wheels, or in forms that you can only spend on food. So SNAP and WIC, you can't take cash and spend it on something else. These programs do help to lower food insecurity. So more people have enough food to eat because of these programs. Uh, and generally they're considered fairly successful. So we
1: often hear uh, you know, critiques of these food programs. President Trump recently had sort of what I thought was kind of a goofy idea to, to take some of those cash-based programs and turn them into like a food, I guess, expanding Meals on Wheels or something like that. Um, but, there's, but there's also the criticisms that they're sort of easily gained or defrauded.
0: Yeah, wasn't it a, um, fixed, bun- a, a fixed basket maybe was proposed? A right. A fixed basket of goods. Of right. Sort. So
1: sort of like the government cheese kind of thing. But the idea is that there's so much fraud in there that we needed to do something to change how those programs worked. Do you think that, you know, what do you think about those claims about sort of the the fraud and, and solutions to fix those?
2: There is indisputably some fraud in food assistance programs. People qualify for SNAP and then their earnings go up and they don't necessarily report that right away. So they keep getting SNAP benefits or free or reduced price school lunch for a while before they're caught. But nobody thinks it's all that large. And... President Trump's idea of, yeah, sending, he basically wanted to combine SNAP with sort of a CSA type idea where you get a box of food every week and it would have fruits and vegetables in it and canned goods and peanut butter and things like that. Would be very inefficient because different people have different tastes and preferences. So I don't eat peanut butter. So sending me a jar of peanut butter is not really gonna help uh, me with my food insecurity. Whereas with SNAP in the current way, I get the benefits on a debit card I can use those to uh, get some, you know, grape jelly instead.
0: Right. But it it can also be for uh, Doritos and other things. I I think they looked at different points to possibly tighten down the SNAP qualified food. Wasn't that another area?
2: You can use your SNAP dollars on anything that has a nutrition label. So if it, If it lists the calories and the fiber and the fat and things like that, that is a food. Um, So you can get chips, you can get soft drinks, you can get um, things, you know, plenty of things that are unhealthy. Studies show that people on Snap buy lots of unhealthy stuff, but that so do those of us that are not on Snap. And we find that people on SNAP and not on SNAP buy pretty much the exact same amount of unhealthy food. That, that, for example, a lot of people criticize SNAP for people buying soft drinks, particularly sugar-sweetened soft drinks with it. And it turns out that they buy almost exactly the same amount of soft drinks as people that are using their own money. It, so
0: there's, probably- no, there's no correlation or um, studies that have looked at are, are they relatively more obese than than non SNAP people? It sounds like there's probably been some studies like that, and and that's there have what, been dozens,
2: if not hundreds, of studies about whether SNAP increases obesity or not. Yeah, and we cannot prove it. Um, so it th- that suggests it also does not reduce obesity, but but we, it does not appear to increase or decrease obesity. It doesn't particularly increase or decrease the healthiness of the diet it does increase food security. It does get people more food, but most of the rest of the stuff is just swamped by the fact that Americans typically don't eat a particularly healthy diet.
0: Yeah, I think the diverse amount of opinions that we have on it come from how people value things differently just in general, right? So if if we look at it and we say, oh, they're just buying chips and soda, and then we get upset, but the purpose of the program was to put food in in the belly and to help support somebody and kind of the social safety net standpoint. And so um, I think uh, you might, people tend to look at it differently because they're viewing it from different lenses and that that's completely natural. But, you know, if we're from an economist standpoint, give them pure cash so that they can maximize their utility, even though it's a minimal amount of, of subsidy, but let them have their own choice. But oh, yeah. then the other people who want to Uh, rule people's lives from kind of a top-down way, well, you gotta be eating some carrots in that diet too. Well, (laughs) that might be kind of pushing the boundaries of what the intent of the program was in the first place.
2: Sure, it's definitely true that if we put more restrictions on SNAP, then we are reducing people's ability to maximize their utility. I mean, if you wanna make people better off, let them decide how to spend the money. It is also true that in many cases, these unhealthy foods are very cheap on a calories per dollar basis. Mm-hmm. And so it should not surprise us that if people are hungry, they're going to buy things where you can really feel full for a small amount of money. And so soft drinks and and a lot of processed carbohydrate type things like bread and, and stuff are ways to feel full on not many dollars.
0: What, what have studies found on the, the- the churning of people on SNAP. I mean, I'm hoping the intended purpose is to, you fell rough on your luck, and and so for a year or two while you're pulling yourself out of whatever mess you were in, um, the food stamps are there. I'm guessing there's been studies on how people move out of that kind of SNAP mobility, if you will, or... (laughs) whether people stay in the SNAP system long-term or is it really being used as a a short-term? I don't don't know if you're familiar with any studies like that, if if that's been looked at.
2: It has been looked at, I'm not super familiar, but there are a decent number of families that go in and out of SNAP pretty often. We refer to it as churn. Mm -hmm. And it is somewhat costly for the program but it is not it's not a huge concern i actually think that the snap program is not as effective as it could be because we don't have more churn that there are people who i mean you wonder if we have snap for example why are there people at the food banks right mm-hmm. snap is giving people enough money so that they can buy enough food so if we're calculating the amount of your snap benefit right Nobody in the country should be going to the food bank, but we see lots of people going to the food bank. When we studied that, the people going to the food bank are often people who are just short-term food insecure. So they've lost their job. They may be between jobs for three or four weeks. It's not enough time for them to learn how to maneuver through the welfare bureaucracy and qualify for SNAP and other benefits. So a lot of the people that end up food banks are short-term uh, food insecure people that we probably should be churning through SNAP, but we're not. So I wanna make a counterpoint to
1: what you're talking about as far as like sort of this idea that it's paternalistic to tell, you know, tell people what, you know, what they should eat and stuff like that when they're on these programs. But I think maybe the, another interpretation of that other argument would be something like, if I was down on my luck and I went to your house, right? it would be sort of odd for me to complain incessantly about, you know, what you were giving, right? (laughs) Like, it's, it's like, well, you know, I'm asking for help. And so sort of like beggars can't be choosers. Uh Right. And so, I mean, I see the whole idea about maximizing utility, but then my question is, well, what about the utility of the people giving it to them? Right. And so is there, is there some, is that why we have wick where, cause wick is is like what you're saying where there, I mean, I, (laughs) <laughs> My wife and I were on WIC when I was in grad school. You know, there's you can buy milk and you can buy these three kinds of cereal things or whatever. It's very limited. Is there just is it because WIC, WIC has a narrower purpose in general and that's why yes. it has those? And that's why it's different from Snap or
2: Yeah, WIC is Wick is a fascinating program. WIC is, from an economist point of view, the best federal government program in existence. Every study shows that WIC saves far more money than it costs because by providing nutrition support to pregnant moms, we reduce premature births, low birth weight babies that end up in NCIU and are very expensive uh, to take care of. And so by reducing those, we save millions and millions of dollars. And so WIC's focus is very much on health. It's not just about food security. So WIC is very restrictive, as you said, and it's only giving people healthy food, period. Yeah. Nothing else.
1: So, so it sounds like, I mean, my, my next question was really good. It's going to be in general, you know, how good of a job do you think the federal government is doing with domestic food aid? But. It, but it sounds like, you, you know, maybe a better question is, is how would you rank the different programs we have since we have sort of a portfolio of them? And, and, and obviously the question that's always in the back of my mind when somebody asks me a question like this is, well, compared to what? And so I guess I'll, I'll just let you fill in that blank
2: too, however you want to answer. Sure. So question. so as I said, I think WIC does a tremendous job. I think SNAP also generally does a very good job. Studies show it, it lifts millions of people out of poverty It does reduce food insecurity, although not to zero. I like that SNAP doesn't have restrictions, that we're giving people choice and letting them choose the foods they want. So I think, separate from the question of whether the government should be doing those things, and I agree with you, the question is whether they're the best people to do it is still a valid one, but compared to certainly average government programs, I think the food assistance programs are pretty well run and pretty cost effective,
0: which is probably a pretty low bar, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I think Levi is touching on the, the things that I was thinking. And when you said the utility of the donor, you know, I think one of the big things with this is that there's a break there between us wanting to maybe help people who are down on their luck and being forced to do it through a government program so the utility that we get is disconnected the uh, course the government itself doesn't have any utility function um, it is just made up of people that are uh, working for it that might have their own motives for for what they do so how much in terms of compared to what you know is there a private sector or more voluntary organization of some sort that gets Kind of crowded out by the by the snap program and and it's somewhat monopolistic powers uh, that it has. Is there other choices. So I I'm not sure that's a very easy one to answer because I I do believe there's a role for government in that I'm not an anti government. Let's all go to private charity, at least on this particular topic, but I do question whether to find out what the right level is. It's very difficult to know some of those variables. Any thoughts on, on that, Jeff, for those issues?
2: I don't know if there is a private sector alternative, if we mean for-profit businesses. I do think that food banks do a tremendous job and deliver food at very, very low costs, mm-hmm. right? Snap is essentially the government handing out money so that people buy it at full supermarket prices. Whereas food banks often manage to procure food at 10 or 20% of that cost. Right. So if we relied on food banks for our food security programs, we could probably cut the cost considerably.
1: Well, you know, that reminds me of I believe it was either a, a Planet Money podcast or an Econ Talk podcast where someone who ran a huge food bank. They had gone to the University of Chicago and asked uh, some of the professors there in the econ department to help them design their distribution and, and collection model, and yes. it was fascinating. Was that econ talk, Jeff? I
2: don't know, but it's Feeding okay. America is the
1: organization. Feeding America. Okay, that that. We'll, we'll have we'll have that linked in the show notes. But um, I, I just that I was fascinated by the discussion because they talked about the way that you know. They've got organized, okay, we're going to have 10 pallets of food come in from some, you know, charitable organization. Well, how are we going to get it where it needs to go and, and all of that sort of thing? So it, it does strike me that, you know, the efficiency thing is, is certainly up for debate. Yeah, yeah um,
2: they use the market. So, so what they do is when the national sort of umbrella group gets big uh, deliveries of food, maybe from a manufacturer, you know, food processor. So they're getting, they're getting whole 18-wheel trucks worth of something. They essentially give their member food banks points, and the member food banks bid using those points mm. for whether they want the different foods. And so they actually let markets
0: yeah.
2: uh, clear, and the food gets distributed to different food banks based on how they bid. So it's a great use of market pre-market principles by nonprofit NGOs. Well, so I think
1: we'll take a break there, and, and on the other side, we'll we'll talk. On the other side of the break, we'll talk a little bit more about um, sort of the ethics part of this and how that I think fits in with with our efficiency arguments.
3: The Gourtney Institute's vision, by 2030, the Gourtney Institute will be known for its alumni, supporters, and participants who incorporate economics understanding with their faith in their careers, vocations, communities, and personal lives. The Institute will be a nationally recognized source for knowledge and contributions to student experience, society's understanding of private and public solutions to poverty, and the overlap of markets, governance, and faith. Young audiences will look to the Institute for challenging and engaging education on faith and economics. Please visit our website at 123povertysex.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysex or on Facebook at Courtney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysex.org.
1: Okay, and we're back from our break. Again, we're uh, we're having a conversation with uh, Professor Jeff Dorfman from the University of Georgia. And uh, we've been talking about sort of the economics and the efficiency of federal food programs so far. And my next question for Dr. Dorfman is, uh, does a Christian worldview require us to support federal food programs? In other words, you know, do, are we required to support government provision of uh, food aid to people or is there some other th- does a Christian ethic let us uh, you know does it, does it speak to that question
2: and my answer is no <laughs> in fact I think government welfare programs are a sign of failure by Christians and that we are called to take care of the sheep feed the sheep specifically and so, if there are people out there that are hungry and need government programs to make sure they get enough food, then we as Christians have failed in our duty to
0: feed the sheep. Hmm. So, That's interesting. So we got we got market failure, government failure, and now we have Christian failure <laughs> that we need to take into account. Yes, yeah, sin seems to permeate in a variety of ways.
1: Not true. So my, I guess my question about that would be that. Well, I, I guess I have two questions, but my first one would be something like implicit in what you're saying is that it's not crowding out. It's that there was a gap left by voluntary agreements that had to be filled by the government. In other words, it kind of speaks to what but Dr. McCullough was saying earlier is that you were talking about sort of a crowding out effect, which there could be both, right? Uh-huh. I mean, it's a dynamic thing, but... It seems initially at least that there was some gap there that they implicitly filled with that initial effort to create these programs because the alternative would be that, you know, there's some kind of public choice political economy argument that You know, somebody started the program with some rhetoric and then, you know, it gets inertia, you know, there's nothing so permanent as a as a as a temporary government program, you know, that It builds a coalition of employees that you paid to do the work. And so the program expands. So how do you see those two?
2: I think I I take a different view. I've done some interesting um, surveys where I've asked people their willingness to pay for say farmland preservation programs. And we have found that people are more willing to pay for some of these programs when they're mandatory. If it's say a tax on everybody, they'll vote yes. If it's personal donations, they might say no, and it's because they don't like the free rider problem. And so I think what happens is people support helping reduce poverty and support helping reduce hunger. And they think they're good people and they would pay their money for it, but that the rest of you all are a bunch of terrible people (laughs) and you won't chip in. And so by letting the government do it, they like that it forces everybody else to chip in. So a bit bit of a crowding
0: in a a bit of a crowding in effect.
2: Yes. Yes.
0: I've I've heard that before with um, I think it's it's limited on how far that can go and maybe in the in the circumstances that are at hand, but the having that as a enforcement mechanism still doesn't probably lead to efficiency, but might be some sort of second best argument because then the people who, if we go through a democratic process on how much that's supposed to be and what the proper tax is and, and whatever, gets proposed by Congress, it's always likely going to be the normal inefficiencies that occur that some people would be willing to pay more than they are and some people uh, would be a little less. But, yeah, I, I can see that. So I yeah, wonder I'm not
2: arguing that it's optimal. I'm just saying I think that's why people support it.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I wonder if maybe what part of this would be something like at the federal level, I don't, I don't trust the other 300 and some million people to chip in. Yep. Right? But, but, uh, but on a local effort, you know, in my town, right, you know, in other words, like we have a limited ability to, to you know, to trust people. You know, so I might trust, the, you know, my family and maybe have, a, have more trust for the people that are in my community or even maybe in my state than people that are somewhere else that I know less about you know, I know they're different from me to some extent. And so I'm more sure that I can, I can help sustain a voluntary effort and I don't have to worry about people free riding on stuff if they're similar to me. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think, I think we get this a lot when we talk about places like Sweden, you know, everybody talks about how big their welfare state is, but then if you talk to Swedish people, it's, it's because they have such a homogenous society, right? It's like, well, we all know, you know, we're all Swedes and, and, you know, there's only 200,000 of us, or however big that country is. You know, and so I know I'm going to be down my luck at some point, so I'm happy to chip in now. You know, and it's and it doesn't really affect their incentives too much, but when you have a huge society with mil, hundreds of millions of people, you know, that are all different communities all over the place, and everybody has so many different cultures, that maybe that's what creates that the idea that the government has to step in to try to solve that problem created by sort of that low trust on that scale.
2: Sure. And, and essentially, Levi, what you're talking about is the Catholic doctrine of subsidiarity. Where imagine the Catholic talking about it, <laughs> subsidiarity. <laughs>
3: right?
2: Yeah, yeah definitely. People, yeah. You know, doing things at the most local level that's effective is the best. And uh Thomas Aquinas said, you know, since one cannot do good To all, we ought to consider those chiefly who, by reason of place, time, or any other circumstance, by a kind of chance are more closely united to us. And and, and you see this, you know, we spend a lot of money in the U.S. to help uh, poorer Americans, all of whom are far richer than poor people in other places in the world. Right, yeah. You know, even even far
0: richer than in some cases than the average person in some places of the world. Correct. So. <laughs>
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. But so, so we're certainly not getting the most bang for our buck. And the reason we do that is because, similar to the people in Sweden, we like to help the people who are most like us
0: and who we sure. more closely yeah. identify with. I like this uh, Christian failure thing, but I, I want to pose something or, or think. Um it might be a bit institutional to say that they failed if we have everybody else being able to free ride on the Christians. So if we have, uh, let's just say for the RCA, 50% of the population is Christian, 50% is not. And if there's some people going hungry, then it's 100% of the Christian's fault. Right. I'm not sure that I agree with that. I I, I think there, there's still going to be limited resources and we're also going to have uh the typical free rider problem that's going to tend to worsen the problem rather than help the problem as some people start to maybe lose their faith like why am i <laughs> why am i carrying everybody else yeah, right.
3: sure.
0: um so anyway i just thought I'd, i'm just I guess, kind of thinking out loud
2: i guess i would say jesus didn't say it would be easy right and and you don't get a pass just because the burden is heavy <laughs> and in fact he said It was gonna be, right? He said, being a Christian's not gonna be any fun.
0: Yeah, and the poor will always be amongst us, so the work is never
2: over. If you do the math, if half the country is Christian, if every Christian household chipped in a thousand bucks a year, you could take care of all the food insecurity in the US. Hmm. So it is not an, un. now I'm not saying that that means that Christians could step in and take care of the housing and everything else too. But the math on the size of the food security problem is one that Christians could, in fact, easily take care of.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of, but to me, that's the looking at things in a static way, not not taking into account that that might cause certain areas to shrink and others to grow, that once we do have that system in place where the, now, if they, I think where I'm with you is that if, if the Christians were voluntarily Giving the right amount. If there was enough knowledge and not problems with information. um, Then, then that would be uh, Maybe somehow uh, the optimal that we're searching for. But yeah, to have the an even amount would just it gets a little sticky pretty fast, I think.
1: But that's a
0: interesting thought to
1: to think about. So as we kind of wrap up. So what I guess Jeff, so if you had to make one big change or a series of changes, what, what would you do to, to take us in, in sort of the right direction and, and the right direction being a more ethically Christian way of handling the way we deal with food, domestic food issues? So what, what would you do to, to change the current system to, to make it more a Christian way and, and to make it more efficient economically speaking?
2: Sure, I I think um, food banks probably could carry more of the load. I think we need to design something to help people that are just in need for short periods of time. So I think whether that's, maybe that's the federal government giving some money to food banks so they can help those people. Maybe it's having a temporary approval so you can get approved for one month of SNAP benefits very easily before completing all the paperwork. And after a month, if you don't do the paperwork, we're gonna kick you off. But for these people who are just between jobs for a few weeks, um, we need a low cost, quick and easy way to get them help. Because that is often the people who are hurting the most.
0: Yeah, that, uh, that, that seemed like that's the place where the food banks or nonprofits, voluntary organizations could step up, or they're currently filling that gap as much as it is filled, and I don't know if they're if it's really sufficient, I, I would guess in some areas of the country it's sufficient. And in other ones, you know, there's a lack of supply perhaps or something. They um, could
2: The food banks could fill the gap. The biggest problem they have is that the people are still prideful enough or uninformed and don't show up asking for the help.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: There's just a lot of people who go hungry for several weeks before yep. they're willing to show up at the food bank and ask for some food.
0: All right. And there, I mean, there's a part of me that would think that's maybe not necessarily a problem if they're able to choose and still function, but be hungry. If they're choosing that again, by making it uh, somehow easier with a, with a impersonal government handout, we might actually encourage somebody that might have been able to push through that time frame. If you know what I mean? What I'm saying is that if it, sure. there's a little bit of me that's saying, if it ain't broken, don't fix it on that. And I'd be concerned with the continual fostering of dependency, something that we didn't really get into too much. And I think looking at it as just a food problem, I think is short-sighted in that why are they in this food problem? You know, is there longer term things through education or different other sorts of services that might round out the reasons why they're hungry? It's not just uh, straight food, but there's there's a story there um, that maybe could uh, they could use some help in other other ways. That it's a it's a complex thing than just uh, simply grabbing bite to eat.
1: Yeah, I, I think that, that's probably true, but I think it it runs into the the other problem. Like we just showed Poverty Poverty Inc. on campus, you know, a few weeks ago, and I think the the big takeaway from that movie is that it's good to help people when they're obviously in dire straits and things are really bad, but these, you know, the, the incentives, you know, over the longer term become more and more of a concern. So any final thoughts on the, the incentive bit, Jeff, like, is there, do you think the incentive system works pretty well with SNAP, but it sounds like you, you like the incentives on the food bank side, just because to me, it's like, yeah, you, you talked about being people being a little too prideful to show up, but it's almost like that. That social stigma thing, yeah, okay, it hurts you a little bit, but it also is is nice because it, it to some extent,
2: pushes people to find another solution over the longer term.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm not worried about SNAP or any other food aid programs fostering dependency. I don't think there are people who aren't taking jobs because they get SNAP and they can get enough food that way or because the food banks are up and up. I think the welfare system as a whole sometimes causes that problem, okay. but I but I don't think, I mean food assistance programs are 10% of what we spend on welfare. I don't think they're the ones that are causing the problem.
0: Yeah. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, and I tend to agree with that too. I do some um, personal finance type coaching with uh, some people in poverty and I, I'd, I'd agree with that in general, anecdotally. that. That's not keeping them there I mean they're they're still able to go out and look for jobs. I mean it is needs based, so it might fall off, but it would be because their incomes went up um, well so. and, and
1: there's another piece to snap too though that is that you know the reason we call it food stamps is because you used to get the thing in the mail, and now it, it's a debit card that's automatically refilled and so you know it's sort of like a paradox there in my mind too is on the one hand, it's more efficient that way because you're not having to mail out. You know paper and stuff like that and people are having to wait for it but on the other hand because it's so convenient you know it also lowers the marginal cost of using it so
0: lowers that stigma and that's sure um, absolutely
1: part could be part motivation
0: but um, other people i've heard argue plenty of times that that's the beauty of it because then they're not stigmatized right and so you've got people on different sides of the fence yeah. for different and,
1: reasons and but but I think that's the problem too is then it then if you get rid of a social stigma on something then whatever behavior that was affecting you now have to find some other mechanism of managing the use of that that program or, or asset or whatever you're talking well I think with that we'll wrap it up and uh thank you very much Dr Dorfman for being with us today and being our first guest and and helping <laughs> us understand you know federal food programs and how they work and we appreciate your uh, insights I enjoy it.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you, Jeff.